comes Tete a Tete with Elizabeth Harris, the show that connects authors, songwriters and poets with their global audience. So I can continue to bring you high calibre guests, I invite you to go to iTunes, click subscribe, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Today I'm delighted to introduce the highly creative and entertaining children's author and illustrator Michael Salmon. Michael Salmon has been involved in graphics, children's literature, TV and theatre since 1967. He started his career with surfing cartoons and exhibitions of his psychedelic art and then joined the famous marionette troupe, the Tintukis, as a trainee set designer stage manager in 1968, the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust, Sydney. Since then, his work has been solely for young people, both here in Australia and overseas. His many credits include his Alexander Bunyip show, ABC TV, 1978-88, pantomimes, fabric and varied merchandise designs, toy and board games invention, and the writing and illustrating of 176 picture storybooks, which Michael, I'm absolutely flabbergasted and astonished and in wonderment about that. Fantastic. And everybody's laughing at that. Or maybe he's laughing at me, I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. One, I'll say it again, 176 picture storybooks for young readers. Several million copies of his titles have been sold worldwide. Michael has been visiting Australian primary schools for over 40 years. His hour-long sessions are humorous, fun, interactive and entertaining, with a focus on students developing their own creativity, which is just fantastic. Suitable for all years. Many of these school visits can be seen on Michael's website, which I will ask you to repeat later. Right, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, several trips have been made up to the Gulf and Carpentaria, Savannah schools, and to the remote Aboriginal community schools on Cape York Peninsula as a guest of EDU. What is that, EDU? Ed Education Department of Queensland. Education Department of Queensland. The Australian Government honoured his work in 2004 by printing a 32nd centenary special edition of his first book, The Monster That Ate Canberra, <laughs> I like that, as a Commonwealth publication for both residents and visitors to our capital. Every federal politician received a copy. Even if they didn't want it, they got one. <laughs> Michael was also the designer of Buddy Bear for the Alana and Madeline Foundation Port Arthur, 1996. The foundation financially supports children and families who are victims of violence, violent crime. They are currently running an anti-bullying campaign in Australian schools. In 2010, the ACT government further recognised his work by commissioning a bronze statue of his first book character, Alexander Bunyip. Unveiled in April 2011, it stands next to the new, and I'll get you to say this, Michael. Yes, Gungarlan. Gungarlan Library in our federal capital. Thank you for saying that. Michael has presented Bunyip-themed history sessions for audiences of school children at the National Library of Australia since 2011. School touring and new book titles continue, which I'm blown away by because you've written and illustrated 176 books. Some of those were activity books, to be fair, but they're still necessitated actually uh, writing the requirements Absolutely. of children, whatever, and illustrations, so it's all lumped in together, basically. Yes, so, so Michael Salmon, welcome to Writers Tete-a-Tete with Elizabeth Harris. 
thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And, I'm, and thank you very much for visiting my studio here in downtown Kuyong, Melbourne. We are delighted to be here. Serena Lai and I are here, everybody. Serena being my wonderful tech support. Michael, we have been Facebook friends for some time now, which is a great way to keep in contact with people. But do you think social media has affected children adversely and stopped them from reading and enjoying children's literature? Do you know, um, in knowing a little bit about some of the questions that you were going to ask, I sort of pondered this one probably the most. Okay. It's strange times. If I go, I'm 67 years old now. Now, if I go back to when I was a teenager, back in the 60s. Promise, well, thank you, thank you, yes. Well. <laughs> it's amazing what no exercise will do. <laughs> Things have changed so much. If you go back to the 50s and 60s, which both of you ladies would have to look at the old films and see reruns of Gidget and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yes, However, the main communication of young people way back several, several decades ago, uh, socially, would have been uh, the telephone. And invariably, houses only had one line yes. that mums and dads would need, but uh, the girls, mostly perhaps the boys too, would be on the line talking to their friends and all this mm. kind of stuff. And that was the only real direction of... of uh, of, of communication, perhaps letters or whatever, but certainly the telephone was the main thing. Mm. Now, how things have changed these days. Oh, yes. Having 12 grandchildren, ranging from, what are they now, two years old to 24 years old, I've seen a whole gamut and see it daily evidence of just how much social media, uh, the, uh, the, the iPads, tablets and things, are taking up their time mm. and the manners in which they're taking up their time. Oh, well, it's certainly, it's, it's a bit like a zoo. I hope they don't mind me saying that. <laughs> and I'm the head monkey, but that's about it. That's true. But if you think of a child, and one of my main loves in life are visiting schools, and over the many years here in Australia, I have visited many, many schools, yes. and, and just see what the teachers are up against these days, because the teachers are often, as is well known, are often surrogate parents on many occasions, certainly. Sure. Yeah. Uh, often is left to teachers, whether it be librarians or just... Uh, just very kind teachers to, to instill mm -hmm. in the children a love of literature and how important reading is. But I think of going back to my youth and my little toy soldier collection and making uh, balsa wood castles and Norman keeps and whatever it may be and playing in my room just with this incredible world of fantasy that I grew up in. What an imagination. Well, my father read to me when it first came out back in the 50s um, and I was quite young, but The Hobbit, and, oh, and then C.S. Yes. Lewis and the Narnian, beautiful, beautiful things. Mm. I was brought up in those kind of, and also read most of Dickens to me, Wonderful. as well as Kipling and things, quite incredible oh. stuff. So my father was a, a major player in my love of literature. And I don't, I'm not sure that that happens hugely that much these days. But I grew up in a world of imagination, and it wasn't any great surprise to my parents that I entered the world I'm in, which is the fantasy world of children, because I never got out of it, basically. 67 years old, you're looking at the moment, I would say probably mental age is about eight or nine, and that's no disrespect <laughs> to eight, nine-year-olds, they're a lot smarter than I. But you make really good coffee for, but, but, for a nine-year-old, Michael. But it did eventuate that sitting in my studio at, at you know, early hours of the morning, if I start laughing at a concept or whatever, I know full well through the passage of time that probably preppies or grade ones or twos, kinders, will start laughing at it too. So oh, you get wow. to trust your judgment after yes. a while in the arts, and you know what you're capable of, you know where your strengths are. But going back to that original question, so I have a couple of the, my grandchildren who are absolute whizzers on their tablets, and they've gone through the Minecraft things, they've gone this, they've gone that, almost mm. this obsessive kind of stuff there. Yes, and I just wonder sometimes, mm. it must take time away from mm. the use of imagination, because let's face it, in using our imaginations, our creativity, a major part, and creativity can be 
cooking a magnificent meal. It could be keeping a well-balanced house. It's all kinds of creativity, or it could be the artist's creativity. Mm. But that's such an important thing of finding out who we are. Yes. And to have children taken away to a certain extent in magic lands, which are absolutely fine until they become obsessive or mm. uh, literally um, you know, addictive, mm. as some of these things are, there's mm. a great danger that children are not, shall we say, able to evaluate or to progress their natural uh, talents, uh, etc., coming through, especially in the arts. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you, Michael. You have written and illustrated so many books, mm -hmm. as, as I've mentioned a couple of times. One hundred and seventy-six. How do you decide what to write about? Well, it's probably I've always written uh, from a cover idea. Uh, there's a book of mine going way back. So one of my old favourites. It was a very simple one, which was my man. It was called The Pirate Who Wouldn't Wash, and when I talk to children, they say, where do you get your ideas from? I said, look, sometimes I just get two ideas which are unrelated, but you put them together. And because my books are hopefully rather funny, I mean, I was brought up in, back in the 50s on things like The Fabulous Goon Show with Peter Sellers and Harry oh, Sigmund, yes. Spike Milligan. I loved Monty Python, which was a direct sort of, you know, baby from The Goon Show, that kind of thing. So my, my love of, of comedy had always been probably UK-based. And so that strange juxtaposition of whatever. So I suddenly thought, okay, a pirate and perhaps someone who doesn't like to wash. And you put them together and you have the pirate who wouldn't wash. And then you simply, it's easy with a vivid imagination, you list a whole lot of encounters of what could happen to a pirate who wouldn't wash. Can we talk his, about Yeah, all that kind please. of stuff there. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. A pirate. monster and then someone who doesn't like his vegetables, which was one of my <laughs> stepsons, William. And uh, he was, so Grunt the monster, which was one of my early popular characters, refused to eat his vegetables. His, his, his teachers went to great lengths to try to find out how they could, how he could eat them, you know, disguise them in milkshakes or whatever it may be. So, but it was William, basically. I was writing about one of my, my younger stepson at that stage. And he, at university, when he went through architectural course, he was called Grunt because they knew full well that this book was based totally on him. <laughs> so it's good sometimes to disguise, perhaps, uh, but nonetheless sort of feature things you see hey, around you and know he well. He loved it. He oh, loved it. He loved it. He got attention, all that kind of stuff there, and he had one of his best mates who let every, everyone know that, in fact, he was called Grunt. <laughs> that was his, sort of, uh, his, his, his name. But at, at some stage, I think he referred to... He actually uses that. He, he lectures in, in architecture around oh. the country these days. He's gone on and done very well. Interesting. Dear William, and uh, he'll use that as some kind, sometimes, of a bit of a joke, saying yeah. about, you know... Icebreaker. Icebreaker, yeah. exactly, oh, exactly. Oh, oh. Was there a pivotal person who influenced your career? And well, if so, yes. can you tell us how they inspired you? Well, apart from, the, you know, sort of the people I've mentioned previously, you know, sort of the, the Tolkien's and the, the Hobbits and then the Lord of the Rings mm. and the C.S. Lewis's um, and, and that kind of thing. I always loved the classic British thing like Arthur Ransom, Swallows and Amazons. These mm. are very famous books that were sort of everyone read at one stage. Back in those early 50s, my father was at Cambridge University, so we were hoisted out of New Zealand. We went to live in, in the UK, and it was a, such a great time for a child to be in the UK. It was still suffering from war damage from the Second World War, and London still roped off sections of it with the doodlebugs, the flying bombs that the, the, the Germans sent over to hit London. So it was a rather strange place. We had to, but the television was brilliant. Hmm. I, could, I was at Nina Blyton. Oh, so was I was a foundation member of the Secret Seven Club. Were you really? And even though based oh. in Cambridge, 
we, I used to look forward to every month at the Inner Blyton magazine. So I grew up on the faraway tree oh, as well and all so that. And, and the Secret Seven, the famous oh. five. I had my badges, I had all the merchandise, all that kind of stuff there. But also on the television in those days was a magnificent, we never got to hear in Australia, it was called Muffin the Mule, Muffin the Mule. But there's also Sooty, the Sweep, the Bill and Ben, the Flowerpot Men, Andy Pandy was another one, all oh, these yes. classics. Most of those are for the you know, for kinders and little bubs. But then there was, uh, Basil Brush was a little bit later on. And British television was always superb, especially for children. Blue Peter and some of those famous shows a little bit later on. I mention this because I had 10 years of my own show on ABC a little bit later on and used puppets and things as I had known back in the 50s when I saw it being used uh, on British television. Can you tell us about that show, please? Well, the show itself, when Alexander first became a, a character, it was a, a what I call a smarty pants book. It was a little book I had privately published back in 1972. This is The Monster That Ate Canberra. Yes. And this was basically the genesis of the television show. And I thought I would do a... I wasn't a university student, but it was like a smarty pants university student publication because the bunyip himself, the monster who ate Canberra, was not, in fact, it was a large, huge, oversized pink bunyip, which looked more like a Chinese dragon. Oh. However, the monster was the public service. Oh. And so it was like a, a joke about the so-called public service right. because back in those 70s and late 60s, large departments were being taken from Melbourne and Sydney and relocated in Canberra. Oh. The Commonwealth Finance of the various things there. So Canberra right. was being flooded in with the public service. And that was Canberra, that's why it was set up. But anyway, as a young youngster back in a, uh, you know, 1972 when I first wrote that book, I envisaged this large King Kong kind of character over Civic, which was the main principal shopping centre and the oldest shopping centre in Canberra, going along Northbourne Avenue as you come into Canberra yeah. from Sydney, as this large monster sort of devouring the things. But this monster had a problem. He was short-sighted. Anyway, he saw the buildings, the famous iconic buildings of Canberra, as objects of food. Oh. So I put them into, like, the Academy of Science looked like a gigantic apple pie. The National Library, which was recently built at that stage, looked like a, it still does a gigantic birthday cake. Oh. And I had the Karelian looking like a paddle pop or something like that. It was just so I turned them into objects of food. Okay. And the bunyip devoured them. And the Prime Minister, originally the Prime Minister back then was Billy McMahon. Oh, yes. And when he changed, <laughs> we had then changed the Prime Minister to Gough Whitlam. So the Prime Minister's changed within the reprints of this little amateur book. The best thing about this... Way, way back when Gough Whitlam first became our Prime Minister, one of the first things he did was institute an office that had never been there before, which was called the Department of Women. It was there specially to consider and, and to, to aid passage of women in Australia into jobs and a whole range of things where it had been a lot of hard before with a male-dominated kind I've of stuff. I've always been a fan world. of Gough, so I must say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gough appointed uh, a single mum called Elizabeth Reed, Liz Reed, oh. and she was a very famous lady, and she really championed the cause of women, you know, equal rights, and, and this ridiculous thing that should have been sort of fixed a long time, but, but hadn't. Right. So Liz Reed was pictured in the centre page of the Women's Weekly right. soon after Gotkoff. This is one of his first appointments, Liz oh. Reed. Yes. And there was Liz with her little bub, so she was a brand new single mother. Oh, wow. And Which little... in those days would have been scandalous. Oh, it is. It was. It was. Yes, it was. A, 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 but Goff was famous for that. I mean, he really went out, especially with the arts. Regardless of how he is considered as a prime minister, he certainly was a great patron of the arts. Goff Whitlam. As but I say, I'm a huge fan. In this picture, <laughs> in the double pages of the Women's Weekly, that centre spread, was a little bubba, and in the little bubba's hands, well, supported by his mother's hand, was a copy of the Monster that ate Canberra. Oh, wow. And I thought, how well, did you I feel. I thought, well, fantastic. I got a phone call within a week from one of the biggest educational publishers in the world called McGraw-Hill, 
who was saying, could you tell us a bit about this? And I was describing it. I said, well, it's probably not our thing. I said, no, but look, thank you very much for calling. So the most unusual things sort of kicked up. And so suddenly we were reprinting this book again and again just for Canberra because Canberra's laughing its head off about the monster eating its, eating its eating its baby. So, <laughs> and they had, uh, we, we had uh, theatrical presentations, pantomimes based on it with the local children's theatre, Canberra Youth Theatre, stuff. ABC then serialised on radio. And then came to me, this was back sort of about 1977, saying, look, through the Canberra end, would you, uh, would you like to consider Alexander Bunyip on television? Wow. And I said, yes, please, thank you very much. Yeah. And it was through a mate of mine who's a, quite a well-known scriptwriter uh, for Australian films called John Stevens and also director of, of uh, plays and whatever around Australia. Right. He was one of the main directors of the Young People's Programs in ABC who were based at that stage in Sydney, in Shandell Street in North Sydney. And anyway, Alexander got on television through this rather sort of uh, strange sort of path he led entertaining the people of Canberra. Can, can I ask you, with with that, throughout your life, and, and you've you know, enjoyed such great success, and, and certainly rightly so, have you found that you know there's been what has perhaps seen an insignificant moments turn into huge, huge achievements for you? Well, try and step away from cliched, but, but it's, sometimes it's hard to, and when they say you make your own luck. But yes. the fact of that, for example, one of my main, I, I love it, the... the, the, the statue that they have Alexander Bunyip, sort of 600 kilograms of bronze, whatever, outside the Gungahlin Library. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's Gungahlin, I'll practice it. <laughs> that came through. Let me tell you how that came through. Sure. And just give you an idea of just the... Sometimes on Google, if you're an artistic person and you're, you're, you, know, you have your pursuit, especially in our business of being an author illustrator, if you just put your name in and see what the latest thing is, if there's any new entries, sometimes schools put things in comments or whatever. Yeah, sure. So sometimes odd things about your... Uh, life <laughs> come up business life work life mm. and there was a situation that occurred when Gungahlin I think it was community council had discussed whether because John Stanhope who was the senior minister the, the the minister the chief minister of the ACT in their government at that stage and was putting up statues left right and center because he wanted a lot of edifices in Canberra mm. to entertain people and you know out he was of a visual person, a visual person. Yeah, okay. and someone said why don't we sort of think of, you could have Alexander Bunyip, that was the day Canberra, and that was just general, general after. Yeah. But that was reported in the council version of Hansard, of the, you know, the, the documented notes taken in that particular council session. And I saw this online. And so I merely wrote to this person and sent them a copy of one of the more recent copies of the, the Monster Day Canberra, saying, oh, that sounds great, let yeah. me know if I can help. Absolutely. Well, gosh, one thing after another happened, and the head of the council, Alan Curlin, with John Stanhope, got it organised, and within a year there was a brand new statue being launched by John Stanhope, one of the last things he did before he resigned, but he'd, had his, he'd done some magnificent work in Canberra. Sure, yeah. And new, new ministers were appointed, etc. Uh, so John, <laughs> the statue was launched, um, and I remember making a little speech, which I dedicated to my mum, who died the year before, and she oh. was a Canberra girl, and oh. I thought that would be nice to dedicate, at least mention her. I'm sure that she'd been around probably um, ethereal, style, I suppose. I, she wouldn't miss out on that one, I can assure you. Oh, um, I'm sure she but when the, when the statue was dedicated, so the statue right. stands there. But probably, can, can why mention all this? Yes, can it, we go back? Because yeah. I, I would really like mm. to talk about that speech about your mum. Can we talk about that? Yes, yeah. Well, my mother Judy, as I said, who passed on in 2010, the statue going up in 2011, was a very 
such so, for example, when Bush at Port Douglas many years ago, before Christopher Scase was up there, so I was going to visit her, she was in a, a hurricane-proof house, which is simply a house in Port Douglas without any windows. It was up in the hills above the, towards the Mossman River Valley. But and for those who don't know Christopher Scase, can, can you touch on him just briefly? Christopher Scase was one of our major <laughs> financial entrepreneurs that, that died oh, over, in, over in a, in a, span, sorry, in a Spanish location owing millions of dollars to many people. He was like a, a pro, pro younger brother of Alan Bond, so, so that's where Christopher Scase fitted in. I don't think New Yorker in Spain ever sort of recovered, you know, recovered from no. the Australian paparazzi. <laughs> Sort of to see whether Scase was in fact dying, whether he's in a wheelchair, whether he was had oh, breathing apparatus so, or whatever. Well, That's right. Yes, yes. I remember that being a nurse. I do remember that. Wheeled out by <laughs> his uh, ever-loving wife Pixie, who's <laughs> back safely in the country now. But anyway, that's by the by. My see, mother was a fairly gregarious character. Um, a bit like yourself, really. Well, y- yes, 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 pushy, basically. But delightful. Judy was was one of the younger daughters of her father, my grandfather. Uh, Canon W.J. Edwards, Bill Edwards, he was a young Anglican curate who'd been badly gassed on the, on the fields of Flanders and the Somme yeah. in the First World War. Um, but he was an educationalist, as well as being a very strong Anglican and within the church. So he was sent on his return out to uh, grammar school, looking after that in Cooma. When Cabra was designated as the place that we're going to have our new capital, sure. the Anglican church from Sydney said to him, please harness up one of the buggies and take some six of your seniors and go look at four different venues in Canberra that we are looking at to have a, a brand new school. Wow. And they chose the most beautiful place yeah. called, uh, in, in a place, a road called Mugaway, just at the bottom of Red Hill, which is Canberra Boys Grammar. Okay. He was their founding headmaster. Was he? Wow. But the fact was they decided on that because they woke up, they pitched their tents under the gum trees, they woke up with the sound of intense kookaburra noise. Oh, and they felt this is perfectly for a grammar school or any other school for that matter. They're all talking and whatever it was. So, a bit like sounding the bell, you know. It, it, <laughs> so, so going back to those days, that was the start of Canberra and my family going back there to the 30s of, of last century. However, back in those days in the Second World War, my father had graduated from school in New Zealand and was sent across as one of the uh, New Zealand... Um, young soldiers to become a, uh, an officer under Duntroon, the, you know, the training college. Oh, yes. The Defence Academy, as they call it now, but good old Duntroon. So he, when he graduated, it was the end of World War Two, and he was sent up to war crimes trials in Japan uh, as his first thing under the New Zealand Army when the Oz New Zealand forces, Anzac forces, went up there and, uh, and looked after things for a while. But my mother was, was quite a brilliant lady, and uh, she was always the one that would be de- painting and decorating and all this kind of stuff, always a dynamic kind of person. Mm. And apart from loving her very much as a mum, uh, she instilled in me this kind of rather gregarious, exhibitionist kind of thing. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> so, so thank the, you, Judy. So Judy thank you, Judy. Yes, thank indeed. Thank you, Judy. I know you're so here, Judy. <laughs> Judy was responsible for, in, in younger, thinner days, of long hair, Beads, oh, not you, hippie you, stuff necessarily, but just total, total exhibitionist kind of stuff. Man, everybody, yes, looked like something I could have, I could have been, oh, could have been another guitarist in Led Zeppelin I'm or something like that. I'm just actually fanning myself <laughs> with my paper. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it, it's all a bit of fun. But uh, did you ever sing? No, 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 no. No, no, just, no, no, no. I was actually a drummer in one of the schools I attended. Yes, oh, yes, but, but not this kind of drummer. <laughs> In the pipe bands oh, okay. at Scots College in Sydney, I was a tenor drummer. Okay. 
So they have double bass drum or whatever yeah. it is, the tenor drum is yeah. where they have those, whatever they are, I forget their names, so yeah. the drumsticks which have those like, like poise they yes, have I in New Zealand and uh, the tenor drums. So it's a matter of coordination that you have to master if you want to play the tenor drum as you march along in your, in your dress, basically, but the black watch dress. Isn't um, learning music so important, which oh, reflects in other areas? It is, it is. Oh, it is. Can we talk is. about that? Well, I, I think having not not been musical, but certainly having written lyrics in my pantomimes, yeah, and done at a very amateur base level, worked out what a bunyip would sing about, or you know, go back to an early blues song or a, a doo wop kind of song when Alexander's stuck in the zoo in the pantomimes. So I had great fun. So my musical experience. I was lucky that I had some very clever people, including one there who uh, was a gentleman who was, um, until a few years ago, was one of the, the heads of tutors of the Canberra School of Music called Jim Cotter. Now, Jim Cotter and I, he wrote my first music for me, for the pantomimes I used to do way back in the old days. Um, and then Peter Scriffin, who was the head of the Tintookies Marionette mm -hmm. Theatre, who were all under mm -hmm. the auspices of the Elizabethan Theatre Trust in Sydney at Potts Point. Mm. Um, and, and Peter had engaged him to do, I was doing some sets, was the first show in the Opera House, first children's show in the Opera House. Wow. And I did the costumes for Tintookies. It was a revamp of what Peter Scribbon had been doing back in the 50s. Uh, and Jim had some brand new music. And so, uh, so my musical experience was just purely admiring music and mm. the talented people who did that, mm. realising it was not my forte. Not but my nonetheless, life, but... by writing lyrics, they'd be inter and mm. giving them some vague, vague, you know, sort of rock and roll, sort of, I like it like, you know. <laughs> Not exactly Stairway to Heaven. Who, who, was, your exactly... who was your favourite uh, band at that point? Oh, you know, well, gosh, you I grew up in the 60s. I, I probably, because I got myself a hearing aid the other day. It, you can hardly see it. It's one of these new things. No, because, I haven't seen it. But oh. essentially, okay. I've had to, uh, because of the love of surfing, I spent a good deal of my younger life surfing yeah. in the east of those beaches in Sydney. Beautiful. The promotion of a bone growth over the air, there's some kind of term for it. And yeah. they had to cut the bone away if oh. they want you to hear properly. And I thought, I don't want my ear cut. I thought I'd just leave it as no, it is at 67. But, but nonetheless, also too, I, I do attribute some of those early groups to my my lack of hearing these days because I did study for my exams uh, with you know the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Probably one of my favourite groups of all time was a, a, a group that spread with different members going to different other groups uh, with the birds in, in, um, in America, the ones that had yes. Dylan songs Wasn't with Eric, Mr Tambourine. Oh, I got the wrong group. We're, oh, we're talking about David Crosby, Jim Clark. We're talking about uh, Jim McGuinn. Jim changed his okay. name to another, became Roger McGuinn or vice okay. versa. But they had the Dylan. They came out with Mr. Tambourine Man. They yes, did Pete Seeger's song. next one, Turn, Turn, Turn. Then they went into more Dylan of All I Really Want to Do. And these are hits back in the mid-60s. Like no, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> not, not even Dylan style. But, but I love those songs, mainly because uh, uh, Jim McGuinn had a 12-string guitar and there was this jingly-jangly kind of feel mm. to their songs, which I love dearly. But another group I have to tell you, mm. because I did meet up with them in real life, oh. which is one of my favourite groups, was the Seekers. Oh, good old Aussie yes, Seekers. Judith. Now, Keith Podker is a good mate of mine. We, oh, we go right. to the gentlemen's clubs like the okay. Savage Club. He's a yeah. member of the Savage and enjoy long lunches and often join with some other desperates. Yes. yes. And Judith Durham, where yes. you're sitting there, came and sat down there with her oh, manager a few years ago. She'd seen a, a presentation. There was a very... Uh, She's beautiful. Oh, magnificent. And her voice. Mm, boy. Angel. Judith had seen a production by Gary Ginnivan, who is one of the principal Australian children's um, uh, entrepreneurs for theatrics, theatres. Mm -hmm. She's just finished doing Hazel Edwards' um, 
hippopotamus in, in, on the roof kind of stuff. Oh, hazel. I love and it's going straight into, I think, I don't know if he's doing uh, Lee Hobbs's um, Horrible Harriet. Now oh, that's yes. going to the, okay. this year, that's on at the, at the, the, at the Opera House. I'm oh, not quite sure whether Gary Ginneman is doing that for Lee. He did, he did for Graham Bass, he did My Grandma Lives in Gula Gulch and stuff, and also brought things like package stuff like Noddy and Toyland or the, the, um, some of the you know, Blyton stuff that came out, other ones like The Faraway Tree. So anyway, he was presenting Puff the Magic Dragon. Now I'm just trying to look around the walls here as I speak to you. There was a graphic, it may be another room, of the poster, so I designed Puff the Magic Dragon. And they used that for all the uh, promotional material and stuff there, but it was the puppet that I designed. And Judith went along to see, this was at the Athenaeum Theatre here in Melbourne yes. a few years ago now, Lovely and theater. she liked the whole idea of the dragon and everything there, so she rang me. And so here was this most beautiful angel on the other line saying, you're Judith Durham. I said, are you really? I sort of looked it. <laughs> anyway, she was around in a couple of days with the management, she at that stage, um, this is before the Seekers got back together and did all their magnificent tours they did over the last five or six years at least, Andre Rio included. Uh, Judith is, is a honky-tonk girl. She loves that music of the spiritual and also going across to honky-tonk and yeah. like Scott Joplin, the ragtime and all this yeah, kind of stuff. Fun. And she had written several things that she, that she wanted the sheet music to be oh. illustrated, oh. to sell uh, as a part of just the, the Judith Durham empire. And she did the, the banana rag. So immediately I illustrated that for her and I didn't take any payment for Judith. I said, look, Judith, may I be impertinent and ask you to come to one of my clubs and sing, come to dinner. She's a very strict vegetarian. She looked after oh, herself okay. incredibly yes. well after the terrible accident she had when she really had to look after her whole system there and she's yes. done that magnificently. Yes. So she, there she was singing and it was just when the Seekers had released one of their LPs, which was called Morningtown Ride to Christmas, oh, which was for children's songs. Mm. So she sang that, and then mm. she, it wasn't a dry eye in the house. Oh. Of the senior gentleman at the, at the club I'm talking about, good old, one of our good old Melbourne's clubs, when she sang the carnival's over. Oh, and it's yes. absolutely superb. Absolutely. So, so yes. that was more than enough payment for, for doing some artwork. Since then, I continued to... Uh, 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 and then met the desperate weren't, weren't Keith Podka. I was lucky. lucky I was lucky. Gorgeous woman. And I have to tell you, Judith, they had out again recently on her site, she's on Facebook as well, had at that stage recorded with the Lord Mayor's Orchestra here in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, it was called the Australian Cities Suite. And she had written a song for every major city in Australia. Oh and I can remember, I, she and I were trying to do a book together. Uh, actually, oh. a book based on a, a song that her, her husband... Uh, who passed on, you know, through the uh, oh gosh, what was that? The the the, the wasting disease, muscular disease. It, what MS or, or uh, no, muscular, it was dystrophy? Mus muscular dystrophy? I'm sure that was oh, it. Okay. Written a song called Billy the Bug and Sylvia Slug, and so we put <laughs> that into a book. And I took Judith along to see some of the heads of various publishing firms in Sydney, as well as the head of ABC Merchandising, right. Right. in their ivory tower down in uh, in Haymarket area beautiful, beautiful ABC premises they have there, lovely studios. And so Judith was much heralded at both places, you know, when I took her in as my guest to introduce lovely. this book to her. The book didn't work, unfortunately. Oh, okay. But she did start singing in the car, because we arrived fairly early down the car park oh. of the of the ABC Citadel at Haymarket. Oh. She started singing. Yes. And when you're sitting there, she started singing songs again from the Seekers. I don't think and I'm so ever going to stand up Here again, we are, you know. beautiful old Kuyong. <laughs> and there was this, this beautiful strains of Judith Durham singing songs for me. I thought, oh, it doesn't get much better than this. Oh, no. wow. I don't think Deborah Harry could have done the same do, thing. Do you, think, anyway. do you think Judith would speak with me on, on this podcast? Do you think she would? Judith is a very accommodating person. She's absolutely, I'm sure that uh, if, if it was asked uh, through her management and uh, Graham, her manager, would, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, she would look at that favourably. I but, would have uh, to wear a ball gown. Well, I'd have a couple. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> to meet oh, the queen. Meet the queen. Oh. <laughs> 
But anyway, I suppose too, um, in my business, and Australia's not a huge place really when it comes to who knows what, and, they, and sure. we talked before about the degrees of separation. Absolutely. And yeah. so a lot of my stuff has been um, involved because of my work with a lot of singers or whatever that have either had books. I remember Russell Morris, oh, not yes, in this place, fantastic. but a previous place the when I first moved to the real thing, Russell yeah. Morris, brilliant, brilliant, and had those brilliant sort of two LPs. Just and really, Molly, really, really, Molly's yes, attached to that because he yes. produced that, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. But Russell Morris had this concept. He came along with his wife many years ago, and I think it's 30 years ago. It was about a toy that was pre-broken and you had to fix it. Right. The whole th- idea of the toy is that you re-glue this broken toy, the right. this ceramic thing, whatever. And he was so keen on it, I just didn't think it was going to work that well. He was a man with an incredible imagination. Russell Morris. Russell Morris was, and he had this toy concept. It didn't work, because I don't think kids want to sit around re-gluing a toy which has been pre-broken. I don't know what he was on, but oh, probably... Well, he's quite, um, you know, quite resourceful, Russell oh, Morris, isn't he? Well, he is. Well, look, the way, look at the way that Russell Morris has revived in recent times, and, and again, he'll have to excuse me, because I do not remember, but I've certainly listened to his two LPs, yeah. albums as we used to call them back yeah, in the old days, he that he did, yeah. um, all bluesy and whatever, so oh, he revived himself and he's still got a magnificent voice. You know, there are so many Australians that are really um, not recognised, I think, as they should be, oh, yes. and such talent, and, and do you think that, you know, we need to, to go overseas, you know, like in the old days, I was listening to a program last night actually, um, and uh, Brian Cadd was on it. Yes, yes, yes. And I love Brian Cadd. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful music. And, and he said, you know, back in the day, you know, you needed to go to, to London. Yes, yes, yes. You know. We well, look at Easy Beats and stuff like that. Do, do you think people need to go? Brian Cadden, and the family, as he calls them, his group are, are reappearing. I think they're doing another Australian tour coming up next mu- uh, this month, February. February, oh, I, I see on Facebook, months. actually. You know, a friend of mine who's, who's a pastor mm. Mm. highly claimed, but, you know, we were talking yesterday about, um, you know, she said in this country that... Uh, you know, she's just not recognised and that she really needs... Oh, she's gosh. working in a boutique. It is a problem. You know, you know on Facebook, which is one of my loves of my life, and you see mm. a good deal of Australian up-and-coming authors and illustrators and ones that you just dearly wish would have... I, I do believe if you earn it, you you deserve a place in the sun Absolutely. or your 10 minutes, 12 minutes of fame or what, all those kind of stuff yes, there. Yes. And if you're, if you're smart enough after your time has been, is that you then start doing things which will reinvent yourself. I'm not talking about Madonna style, but I'm talking about coming up with new things, being aware of new trends and things, and Mm. seeing whether you can adapt your talent. Being a survivor, isn't it? Being a survivor, absolutely. Because let's face it, with the population we have, I mean, I'm very grateful, for example, for the schools around Australia, in visiting now for 45 years. I'm sure they're grateful to you too. And I go into the schools and there are, are teachers there that say, look, the last time I saw you, Michael, was when I was in uh, you know, prep or grade ones oh, or whatever, wow. and I beautiful? loved your books then, I still yeah. love them, and, and I'm just very so thankful. How I'm thankful they remember other, it. Other than well, this is one of those major things of feedback you get. And some of them come up and say, look, I started drawing because of, of, of your drawing, <gasps> my quick drawing. It's so, just those things there that, that I really, and also entertaining, yeah. sort of hopefully doing a bit of stand-up comedy, giving out very silly prizes like Barbie books to grade six boys for good behaviour. And the little preppies will never forget those things. You know, can, you, can you please talk us through, like when you present at the school, can you talk us through yeah. how well, you do that? This year I've got a Michael Savin's Monster Show, which is really talking about more or less the same thing, but some different pictures to the ones I've been doing before. Essentially what I realised right at the start is if I do some speed cartooning, right in the very first picture I draw there, yeah. and do it so quickly in, in a great show-off manner, yeah. you get the kids hooked. The it's little magic. ones, because they say, look yeah. what he did, look yeah. how fast he drew. Wow. And then I, I always knew that that particular facet 
if you did it correctly from the little preppies in the front, because we do try and get mixed grades to the big year sixes sure. at the back there, grade sixes, is that you would have their attention for a yes. good deal of the time Such if you skill. kept on. So I sort of uh, talked about just the way I invented characters and how it happened. And Bobo, my dog, who's not here today, Dear Bobo, in the book I wrote called Bobo, My Super Dog, Gosh. where I sort of, uh, he saves the world a bit. Okay. However, of course he would. <laughs> um, but, oh, I don't know. Let's just go back to, to in Australia and the people that are trying to make it and yeah. doing their very best, and you see that brilliant talent. Yes. And it's very evident on Facebook as one of my major, you know, sort of the purveyors of talent, the ideas that people come up with and all this kind of stuff there. I mean, you've got some brilliant people here in Australia. Look at Lee Hobbs for a start. Now, he's mm-hmm. a mate of mine. He also belongs to the Savage Club that I do, and so I catch up with him for lunch on occasions. And there he is for his two-year tenure in his position there, sort of championing children's books and children's literature around Australia. His cartoons are very much like uh, Ronald Searle, who was a very famous British cartoonist, who did the original cartoons that accompanied the originally published books and also the film versions of St Trinian's movies, the schoolgirls oh, and things like oh, that, the, wow. the naughty schoolgirls. Yes, yes, okay. And Ronald Searle was a brilliant, brilliant artist. And he had the kind of nuttiness in his, in his cartooning that Lee Hobbs has. Do you look at Lee Hobbs' stuff? They are very, very sparse, great placement of colour, yeah. They're done in a very slapdash manner, but it all works beautifully, from yes. Horrible Harriet to uh, yes, yes. Uh, Old Tom to whatever yeah. it is. And you've uh, got other people. Um, what was the, what's that book by Aaron Babley, is it, uh, called uh, Pug the uh, something other pug? I, I bought some books from one of my very young grandchildren for Christmas, okay. and I thought, I haven't seen these books before. And yeah. here he is winning awards, Yabber Awards, and all yes, this kind yes, of stuff. Yes. And so there's so much talent around. It's hard in Australia to make a living as an author because the royalties and stuff even if you are one of the top ones, may suffice for a while, but it won't be a continuum. And yet, Michael, you've done that. Only for because schools. years, haven't you? Well, it's, it's been 45 years at schools and 50 years in the arts. Mm. But so mainly because I, I branched out and did things like theatre. We had the television show. You saw as you first entered this, my little shelf room, I showed you the merchandise that we had out yes. with Alexander Bunyip. Yes. Uh, spotlight stores were behind me in fabrics for a yes. decade, um, and they finished not a huge many years ago. And that had nothing to do with Alexander Bunyip. But the fact that of really of, of diversifying. Okay. And the books for me laid a platform. Sure. When mum or dad read a book to their children at night, and it happens to be one of yours, and it's something that they like, and they happen to be the one of the lead buyers of Spotlight stores, and said, we must do something about this guy. And they came oh, around yes. sitting where you're sitting and yes. said, we'd like to offer you a deal. I said, oh, thank you. That's great. But can I interject? Yeah. Because, you know, the, the vital part of that is, is certainly, you know, that there's, as we said, talent and, and diversification, mm. but it's also the ability to connect with people, which you are very, very skilled at, you know. Well, and... Yeah. Um, the warmth that you have, you know... If, oh, if well, you thanks, thanks to my mother, I have to say, because she yeah. was a people person. Yes, you're quite right. It does help to be a people person if you're an mm. artistic person. Of mm. course, sometimes it doesn't flow. Some of the children's authors, the best children's authors, are just not people persons. <laughs> and so, so you can't be expected to do anything. I learned a long time ago of creating an impact on your audience, start and, and hold them if you can from then on, mm. and then you can impart any message you want. And the only message I really impart to the children is about you know, developing their creativity, for them to start working on the things they're good at or keep on drawing or singing or whatever it may be. I really want to segue into something from those comments about your work for the Alana and Madeline Foundation. Mm. You know, that is so, oh. so pivotal. Can, can we talk about yes. that, please? Do you know, in general terms, um, it is really good if you've had success 
I found, especially within the arts, to be able to find venues and areas and avenues to give back yes, to society. I, agree. I hope that doesn't sound too sort of corny, but that's it quite true. Beautiful. Up here, uh, I've got the when I was one of the patrons of Life Be In It for the Victorian, oh, yes, for, yes. and I designed a lot of the vans, those large pantechnicon vans that went round right. and advertised anti-drug that was or norm, whatever. That was normal, wasn't it? Norm. That, um, no, Norm, Norm was life be in it. Yes. This is this is um, this is life education. I'm sorry, life education. The one that was started by Ted Knoffs up in the, the King's Cross Chapel, but they went to a huge thing. Large Pantechnicon semi-trailers filled with the latest kind of things, and all around Australia, but particularly in Victoria. Mm. Well, that's where my expertise was in helping them design big murals to go on the painted by local mums and dads, and also do to help some fundraising. But life education had a Harold Giraffe as their main logo. And they're still going gangbusters. So these things would go to schools, and just like the dental band, but a lot bigger than that, um, would walk through this and see these incredible sort of uh, digital displays of bodies and drugs, anti-drug kind of things, all this kind of stuff, but magnificent, magnificent. But that was one thing I'd already been involved in. A good mate of mine, a school librarian called Marie Stanley, who's since uh, not a school teacher anymore, a school librarian, she rang up soon after 1996 when the horrific Port Arthur thing had occurred. Yes. She had been seconded. Walter Meekak, whose wife Nanette and two little daughters, Alana Madeline, were shot to death. Yes. Um, he had he knew he had to do something. So he went to see the Victorian Premier at that stage, Steve Brax, and also yes. saw John Howard. Mm -hmm. And between them he got funding to set up a St Kilda Road office wow. and start the Alana Madeline Foundation, which is purely there to help the victims of violent crime the families, the kids and all that kind of stuff, provide them with some kind of accommodation or some kind of support or clothing or mm. needs of toiletries, a whole range of stuff there. So they seconded uh, Marie Stanley from Williamstown North Primary School mm. because I'd visited her school many times. She said, she, she rang me up and said, look, Michael, I, I'm doing this, I'm on salary and etc., but I need your help. Could you help me invent a character and so I came on board with Alana Madeline on a purely um, voluntary basis which was my pleasure and we invented a little character called Buddy Bear as probably a very safe little bear who was a spokes figure whereby and there was um, behind me here as we speak in the interview there's Buddy Bear chocolates up there they did something like five million chocolates with my name and my little design you know, Michael, through next, coal stores and targets time, and all that next stuff there. time we meet I think I need a camera <laughs> well, that, okay, lucky, you that know, was the Buddy Bear film. stuff, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Buddy Bear has gone on strongly now. It's now uh, it is the Alana Madeline Foundation. Buddy Bear being now part of it, but they got involved in um, very important, probably the main focus of anti-bullying. And I was the person. I want to say one thing because it's true. I suggested that they should go. Uh, violence and all this kind of stuff for for families was terrible enough. But if they wanted to get into bullying, if get something else, they really should so go to the heart of the matter. And to me, I said to them once, look, please, I see what we're doing at the moment. We've got Buddy Bear as a spokesfigure for this violence in the home. But we should really be hitting schools and things with some kind of program which centres around bullying mm. and have an anti-bullying campaign. Mm. And, you know, it was one of those things which is said at the right time, at the right place. Mm. And now we've got Princess Mary over, is it Denmark, sort of, who's the international head of the Buddy Bear sort of thing, and oh. they've got their own things over there. It's spread because of her Australian connection with Tasmania. We have um, the, uh, I think it's the National Bank, I think are the main sponsors of, uh, mm. of the Buddy Bear program, or the Alana Madeline. Mm. And so we have a fully-fledged large charity. But the early days of inventing Buddy Bear 
and there were a lot of people that gave their time and effort for no cost, as I did, and pleasure, mm. to get the whole thing going. Mm. But it was all through, initially, Walter Meekak, thinking that as a dad, with his deceased wife and two little kids, he had to do something. He was a pharmacist by trade, and he just he was a smart man, and is a smart man, yes. um, and just knew, and, and he set the wheels in motion. And so it was such a, pleasure is not the right word, it was satisfying to be involved with a program that was ultimately going to help children feel better, and, per- and save and and especially with this bullying thing of, of being able to Pers- personally I love fundraising and I do a lot mm. of it and, and you know we have um, actually on the uh, agenda this year a, a big fundraiser for um, another children's author Pat Guest his son Noah and yes. um, Noah has Duchenne muscular dystrophy oh right yes 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 and the family need a wheelchair accessible vehicle yes yes yeah Pat's a wonderful person mm. he's um, published five books and counting with Honey yes. Ground and, oh, yes, yes, yes. and has written one about Noah called That's What Wings Are For. He's actually um, podcasted with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask if you would like to stand up and um, create something. Absolutely. Let me know. <laughs> I don't no, have to I answer, finish my sentence. No, no, no. The answer is yes. <laughs> the the answer is yes. The generosity. I, Thank yes. you. No, no. My pleasure. Pleasure. You talk about, is it correct pronounce it Duchenne Foundation? Duchenne, yeah. Okay. There was a very famous fundraiser with that society up in Cairns a couple of years ago where various artists and musicians and illustrators, whoever, were asked to provide, and they said uh, ukulele. And the Duchenne Foundation had this huge, and they were all sort of, uh, so you had, you know, very famous musicians and artists and illustrators, whatever, creating and painting their own version on this actual practical ukulele that was then sent back to Cairns, then auctioned off for charity and raised wow. a whole lot of money. You know, Pat, I think, would love to meet you. Well, and, I, and I know Noah, the whole family, just beautiful, beautiful people. Well, I have to know, only because of that connection when they contacted me saying, would you like to, and I had no knowledge of whatever, of, of, the, of the disease and, and, mm. the, and the, the toll it took. And, and so, so is it, is it would it be true to say, from my recollection, that's quite gender-specific. It often yes, hits boys yes. more than girls, or yes, does hit boys yes, more than girls, yes, full stop, I'm not quite sure. Yes, but, the, uh, the two children that but, I knew were brothers, yeah. and, um, and they passed. Yes. Yeah. So, but you know, um, we want to focus on the positive side, and, yes. and, and this Saturday actually there's a trivia night which is sold out, good, and good, it's good. it's um, 80s music, which is you know my thing. I, lo- I love that. <laughs> yes, yes, <right. laughs> so yeah. hopefully I'll win, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm not bet. Don't, don't bet on me, Martha. But no. I could. <laughs> but you know, if there was a ticket, I'd invite you. But you know, um, we're looking at later in the year, and, and we have some great people involved. Dave O'Neill wants to do a spot oh, on yes, this good, show. Oh yes, good, 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 good. And he podcasted with mm. me, and um, you know, like yourself. Before, pretty much before I got the sentence out, he said yes, didn't he? He was right into it. Robin Payne, whom I wrote my song with, mm. which reflects my children's book. Yes, um, you know she she wants to write mm. a song for this fundraiser. Yes. So you know we've got some really and Robin Payne was on um, Hey Hey Saturday. She was in that band for many years. Oh right, right, right. And, yes, and yes, yes. Robin's yeah. incredible. She plays with Will Wild and the whole thing in red and yes, all that kind of yes, stuff. Right yes, right yeah, beside yeah, them. She's yes, you know she's yeah. performed at the grand final. She's yes. an incredibly um, talented lady. Yeah. Well, I just ran there the other night with her and, and Neil, her husband, mm-hmm. and, and um, Steph, who you know is a good friend of mine, who um, has certainly performed with her on stage as well. So right. you know, they're looking yeah. at writing a song for Noah. So you know, know, it's taking off. One of the best fundraisers that I've ever been to um, has been a yearly event, still going. The Alana Madeline Foundation did. I don't keep in contact with them directly. It was just a pleasure to be able to develop work. But what they did do each year at the Palladium Ballroom have Starry Starry Night. Now, oh, Starry Starry Night... Yes 
would have almost anyone who's anyone in show business and on television and in the media would be there. From the jockeys for the Melbourne Cup who began singing, doing a village people song to whatever. Quite brilliant. (laughs) And they had the, um, just a huge host. We're talking about possibly, without exaggerating, about 50 or so celebrities attended that. Wow. Black Knight night and it was it really was a starry starry night and it is i haven't attended for a long time but i did my duty and was great pleasure to be there and and part of it but that was a brilliant fundraiser and still continues as one of the main fundraisers for the alana madeline foundation that you have said yes to me before me even finishing my sentence thank you so much okay that's okay (laughs) i'd like to um talking about stars you know i'd like to um go to my signature question yes and then we'll take a due michael this is the signature question i ask all my guests what do you wish for, for the world, mm. and most importantly, for yourself? Well, as we're sitting here in early February of 2017, because of these incredible events that are going on almost every quarter of a day for the United States and things there, where the world order seems to be rapidly changing mm. and oddities occurring, and without going to that too heavily, we all know what we're talking about sure, there sure. or observing. I would really hope that... that the situation in America remedies itself okay. and that uh, the situations change rapidly and that America sort of gets back because as the, as the biggest country in the world for, for what it is mm. known as, mm. because we need the stability of America, etc. So it's a fairly direct sort of wish that, that America gets its act together again soon and, and sort of maintains something that we can then trust in because uh, America really is it being that main country in the world. Do, do you see a way, you know, does that start one person at a time? Is that how oh, things, well, things start to change? Gosh, well, as we've evidenced with the Women's March and a whole range of yes. stuff there now, the, the immigration, and oh dear, it just goes on and goes on. And without going to a full-scale discussion of that, my wish would simply be that America gets its act together quickly mm. and mm. maintains and gets its, uh, someone new in charge I don't know how that's going to happen, impeachment or or re early. That won't happen just yet, but Mm. something has to happen so that the world can feel a bit stable again. And that's not grandiose, but that's probably Mm. affecting a lot of people at the moment throughout the world. As every new edict or special signatory thing is signed in the White House, the ripples it sends across for instability and whatever is quite amazing. We've never seen it before unless you were there during Chamberlain days when he was sort of Neville Chamberlain was talking with Hitler and all those days and, and some of those, uh, not grandiose, but that's all high-flying stuff, but, but it does affect especially Aussies who love America dearly and America loves us. But, you know, to me, your books so beautifully reflect history. Some of them do, some of them do, yes. And yeah. I think it's a bit like the Facebook page I love. I really do like entertaining people and making them laugh. And that's probably the last part of your question about uh, I really would like every child that ever I could encounter in the mass audiences I sometimes have at schools and things. We're talking about up to 500 or so. Wow. I would love to think that every child had an opportunity, not because of any of my talk, that may be instrumental, it may, but it doesn't really matter. The children of today can reach their potential and the, the, just the energy and the, the talents they have are recognised and not squashed quashed, forgotten, put to one side or whatever mm. by society mm. or family you know, issues or whatever it you, may be. You know, that reminds me of, of a good friend of mine, Andrew mm. Eggleton. So Andrew Eggleton is an interesting man in that... He's a New Zealander, actually. He's a yes. Kiwi. But he talks about the art of play and, and how he wishes... So his wish is that everybody gets to use their God-given talents. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, so, well, so he, ditto, ditto, yeah. absolutely. Because you do see the children out there just to give you an example, I spoke to close to 12,000 children over a seven-week 
tour that oh, I did nice. organised myself. I do have some agents organising other states and things. How do you look but, after your throat doing that? Oh, thank goodness. I've always had a, a voice that, that can throw. It's a loud voice, probably the captain of a rugby team or whatever <laughs> back in my... My machismo days and all that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. there. Well, I'm in New Zealand, that we've got to go. As a front row forward, you don't oh, normally wow. have a, a shy, retiring kind of personality. Okay. Um, <laughs> in that particular tour, we toured everything like uh, around the Riverina. We did places like West Wyalong, places you normally drive through as you're going along the back roads up to uh, Dubbo or some place like that. We went, then we went to Sydney, full scale, a lot of the Western suburb schools. And even this morning, I had a phone call from one of the agents um, of a school near Logan Lee, Logan, who uh, said there's a school called, I don't remember the school, but they want a couple of sessions, and most of those children are refugees with English ESL, so English second language. Yeah. I would say English third or fourth language. How, some of those how schools. many children at that school? 700. Okay. And it's around there. Now, she said that the agent who rang me, yeah. and I was delighted because this was the first one in for the particular tour coming up in, uh, in late July for yeah. southeastern Queensland. The reason, no doubt, that you've been invited to this particular school, which I know well, is because my act is highly visual. Yes. You don't need not a language to understand it because it, I draw the cartoons or when I'm caricaturing children or getting them to caricature me. It's almost like international language is not the right phrase, but it's like a, just a basic human comedy or whatever. It's like smiling. You know, it's like smiling. It? Yeah. And, and the more the merrier. So up around there, you've got the refugee children. You've got a lot of, which I really do enjoy going to the Tongan or Samoan or Fijian or Maori schools or New Zealand because I used to play rugby and I played with so many different islanders and things over the years and some good mates there. They're so, great people. And especially up around there in the southern parts of Brisbane mm. before you hit the Gold Coast, it's, it's always challenging and I love going up there so I was great to hear that. So, But the same thing applies to the indigenous schools up in the you know the Gulf yes. of Carpentaria, they call them the Savannah, Gulf Savannah schools or up in Cape York where you go to places like uh, uh, Weeper and stuff like that there, um, and some of the most notorious, notorious because of just the, uh, the troubles that occurred at uh, a couple of places, I forget, along that peninsula there, that are trouble spots and have been for many you years. You know, Michael, that just says so much about you, because so many people would not go within cooey of those places, and it reflects your beautiful generosity. Oh, well, so so I want to thank you very much thank for you. guesting on Rafa's Tete Tete with Elizabeth Harris. And um, I think we need a part two. It's been absolute oh, delight. Well, thank and, you very much. And thank you so and much. And a Serena for too. For, 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 I babbled on a bit, but 50 years, all, 50 years of work in, in this country, there's been a lot of water under the bridge, and a lot of people, and a lot of children, whatever, and it's just... Uh, I'm just very lucky, I consider myself very lucky to, to be in that position, to be able to uh, have an accord with kids and just what, get on what, with them and entertain them and, and just enjoy them, full stop. I right. consider those children and us today very, very lucky to have met you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you.